0: Of how the gospel was spread through the known world. How Jesus gave these disciples, these apostles, a mission, and he sent them. And as they went out, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus, when he commissioned his apostles to take the message, he promised they would receive the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit would indwell them, that the Spirit, in fact, would give them the words to say when they stood before leaders, and he uses the word magistrates, when they stand before magistrates. If you'll notice in this uh, passage in Luke 12, he says, When they bring you into synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Up to this point, Paul's been brought before authorities. He's been brought before Jewish leaders, local synagogues, and even the high priests, And he most recently had a dust-up with the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul's life has been threatened, and we have this man named Lysias, who's a local commander. And he wants to protect Paul, this Roman citizen, from the violence of an unjust mob. So he loads up a convoy, and he sends Paul to Caesarea. If you look in your Bible, just go back a few verses to chapter 23 and verse 32. You'll notice that after they stayed in Antipatris... They made their way to Caesarea, which is by the coast. And it says here, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him, Paul, and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter, this is the letter that is cited in verse 26 of chapter 23. They delivered the letter to the governor and also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Paul was back in Caesarea. This was the place where Philip had ministered. In fact, you remember Philip, after he ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch, and led him to Christ, he goes up north, goes up the coast, and he settles there in Caesarea. And in fact, we saw this uh, in, in chapter 21 when Paul went to Caesarea. There he stayed with Philip the Evangelist and his daughters. Remember that, that story. This was also the place where Cornelius lived. Caesarea has shown up a couple times in the book of Acts. Cornelius was this, this, uh, this Gentile who sent messengers to, to Peter, actually. Uh, and Peter had seen the vision of the sheep being lowered from heaven and the clean and unclean animals... And he taught in Cornelius' home there in Caesarea. It was the bustling, it was the metropolitan, diverse kind of a city you'd expect in the modern world today. It had a lot of Jews living there. It had a lot of people from all over the world living there in Caesarea. And it was from this city just a few short chapters ago that Paul had decided to go to Jerusalem. He was in Caesarea when the Spirit of God gave him a burden, and he had to be. He was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now he finds himself right back where he was, but as a prisoner. He finds himself bound and unable to go where he wants to go. And we see the disciples following the Lord's leading and acting out the compassion of Christ and the truth of Christ to the world. Think about all the things the disciples had done to this point. They had performed miracles. They would healed lame people. They would raised people from the dead. They had shared the gospel with Jews and with Gentiles. They had spread the gospel far beyond their little region of Galilee and of Judea. Paul's vision from the Lord, I'm sorry, Peter's vision from the Lord meant that the Jews and the Gentiles who used to be at odds with one another could be sitting down at the same table and fellowshipping with each other under Christ. They could come into a church and sit with one another, and love one another. Paul took this message on his missionary journeys. he traveled, and experienced a great deal of, of difficulty as he traveled. And the Jewish authorities saw this preaching of Jesus as a threat, and they had to do everything they could to disrupt, to destroy. They saw Paul's success, and they wanted to do everything they could to stop him, even to kill him. And I want to focus in on this point right here. That in order to do this, that by trying to disrupt Paul and trying to destroy him, What actually happened was that at every point, Paul was able to preach the gospel to new people. That every time people tried to stop the gospel and tried to put a roadblock in the way, every time the preaching went forth. What a powerful, powerful truth that Paul took every opportunity given to him to preach the gospel and its transformational power to everyone who needed to hear it. Every time the enemies of the Lord try to stop the power of the gospel, try to stop Christ, they just give more opportunities for it to go forward. We'll see this morning one more opportunity, one more chance Paul has to preach and to explain the gospel. Let's go with the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time together in His Word, and then we'll look. Lord, Father, we ask, we thank You so much, Lord, today we ask for Your presence among us. We are promised the Spirit of God that helps us understand and interpret Your Word, spiritual words to spiritual people. we ask God that you just open our hearts to truth today. We would see you as our King. We would see you as our Lord. We would see other people, even people in high authority, as those who desperately need a Savior and need a Savior who who loves them, and, and they need to trust you too. I pray we would take opportunities that are given to us to preach the gospel. We would not be fearful but bold in the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us this story of how how Paul was able to use another opportunity to, expand, or to, to to explain the gospel to someone who might not have otherwise had the opportunity, we pray your blessings on the service, play your blessings on on this message, and I pray God that you'd use the words out of my mouth and the words from your Bible to transform us in Jesus name. we pray. Amen. We'll see here as we begin, uh, uh, the first scene, if you will, is the public trial. We begin in verse 1, and Paul takes this opportunity to preach. He has here an opportunity to preach, and he's going to take this opportunity because he had been unjustly accused of all kinds of things. Now he would get his day in court. There would be no mob here. This would be a real courtroom drama. And so here he is, whom we thought, standing before a fair Roman judge. Let's read in verse 1 through 9. We'll see the accusations that come against Paul. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he had called upon Tertullus, began his accusation, saying, "'Sing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity as being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness.' "...nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us." Verse 5, "...for we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among the Jews throughout all the world, and a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Elyseus, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands." commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Here is the courtroom scene. We are familiar with the courtroom scenes in our context, and they would not have been that much different than what we would experience today, where there stands the prosecution and here stands the defense. And the prosecution has done something. They have brought a high-powered attorney with them. Tertullus is an orator. He is a, a well known speaker and he is, a, he is an influential man. And he's powerful in his speech. In fact, you can tell as he begins to preach, or not really preach, but he begins to speak, he's like a hired gun here with how he talks, how he fluffs up Felix. He tells him all these things. Oh, we are so thankful for your great governance. Now, here's the funny thing if you study Felix's governance, he was a terrible governor. He was a terrible governor. He was a former slave who had served the emperor so well that the emperor gave this man a governorship. He was a slave and he was not known for his ability to actually deal with conflict. He was not known as a good governor at all. Most of the contemporary sources call him a terrible governor. And so we know from this that he is fluffing him up, he is giving him good words to try to, 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 to uh, that he would. Um, he would uh, work on his behalf. So the big question here is: How would Felix respond to this? Would he give in to these kinds of these kinds of flatteries? We see here the notice the charge against Paul as a troublemaker. He calls him a nuisance. I actually have these up on the screen, I, I, and I have them for you as well in your notes because I want you to note what, what's happening here. He calls him a plague or a pestilence or a problem, like, like, like a plague that, that spreads, and is just, you just want to get rid of it. You don't want a plague to, to be around. There's nothing good about a nuisance, a pestilence, that he would actually stir up mobs. He says this Paul is stirring up mobs, uh, and he's, he's causing trouble. That He's actually a ringleader of a Nazarene sect. There's this small group of Jews who are a sect of these Jews who, who they don't really belong to the mainstream. They are, they are, they're disruptive and they're a problem. In fact, Paul had desecrated the temple. He had sought to desecrate the temple. What's ironic about all these charges, and if you wrote those charges down on your sheet, you will notice one, two, three, four, all these charges, exactly the opposite is what's going on. Isn't this the case that sometimes happens when God's people are accused? The exact opposite is what's happening. At that time, the religious leaders were a plague among the people. Jesus says, you are giving them burdens they cannot handle. It was the religious leaders at the time who were calling the people to do things that they could not do and were requiring things that were ridiculous of them. And in fact, it was who had stirred up the mobs, the Jewish leadership this whole time. Have been stirring up mobs to try to stone Paul. Remember these stories. And rather than being the sect of the Jews, Jesus was actually the completion of the fullness of the Old Testament expectations. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the, or is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus, let's talk about the temple here. Jesus had told the Jewish leaders, he says, tear down this temple, and in three days you will raise it up again. What was he speaking of? The temple of his body. Who had desecrated the temple? It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Paul at all. In fact, it was the Jewish leaders who had, who had desecrated the place where God is. They had desecrated the temple by, des, by destroying, by, by whipping, and by crucifying the perfect temple of God. Here, as, as Jesus is described in John, the tabernacle of God among men. They destroyed and they sought to, to kill. They did kill, but they sought to totally destroy the temple of God, the true temple of God where God is worshiped. Their accusations with Paul came with the consent of the entire group. The whole group said, Yes, we agree. With this, And so what does Paul do to defend himself? Look at verse 10. And Paul, after the governor had nodded for him to speak, answered. He says, "...inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. And because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city." nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. There are three parts to Paul's defense and Paul's speech. The first is simply the defense. Paul makes a defense for himself. He says that all that they're saying is not true. He says, I've only been here for 12 days, and in those 12 days I could not have done anything that they said I've done. Plus, there's no one here to actually verify that what they're saying is true. It's just not true. It's simply not true. He defends himself. Notice he doesn't have a high-powered attorney speaking for him he has to stand up and speak to the governor himself. And I think I go back to what Jesus said to his apostles by saying that you will have to speak for yourself, but don't worry because the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you ought to say. And after he defends himself, he moves to a confession. I want you to notice how he says this. We're going to focus a little bit here in verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you. And here Paul moves from defending himself to preaching. He uses this opportunity to open up the truth of God's Word and present it. Look at what he says. He says, I confess to you that according to the way by which they call a sect, in this way I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He says this is no cult. This is no sect. In fact, he says, I worship the God of my fathers and I believe everything written in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. Paul is referencing the Old Testament because that's important. Without the Old Testament, we cannot understand what happens in the new. A lot of Christians today, I've talked to some of you who said, you know, I've never really read the Old Testament before. I never had an opportunity to go through the Old Testament. I've never had that chance. Or I always tended to stay with the New Testament. The Bible here, Jesus says, I, he, or, or Paul says here that when, when Jesus came, He is not different from the Old Testament. He is not, in a sense, a different God. I've heard people say, well, the Old Testament was one way, the New Testament is different. That's not the case. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament expectations in the old. He is fulfilling those Old Testament expectations. It's not like God got things wrong in the Old Testament and had to get them right in the new. In fact, Paul says this is a continuation. It's one story of God. Jesus says this when he preaches. And I, I mentioned this to you, that Paul worshiped the one true God. When Jesus says this, as I read this morning as we began our service, Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, I say to you, not till heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will, in no way, will, be no, uh, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Paul defends himself in this confession. He spek- speaks that he's worshiping the one true God. He has hope in this God. Notice this next part. He has hope in this God for righteous judgment. How he says it is hope. Now, when we talk about hope, I might say, I really hope. I really hope we have a good meal after church today. You might say that. I really hope the crock pot turned on. I really hope that I didn't leave my iron running this morning after I ironed my clothes. You might have these hopes. Some of you kids might say, I really hope that one day I'll marry somebody I really hope that the Panthers win one football game this year. You know, you might have these these feelings of hope. That is not the word hope we're talking about here. That, when you say hope in that context, it just means that, that well, it might happen, it might not happen. I'd rather it happen than not happen. When the Bible talks about hope, we're talking about an eager expectation, a sure expectation of what is going to come. It is an expectation, and you know it's going to happen. It's not like, well, I hope it happens. He says, no, this is the hope. This is what we place our confidence in. Another way of translating this word is faith. It is my faith of what is going to happen in the future. It is my eager expectation, my sure expectation. And this expectation is shared with these Pharisees about a future resurrection and a judgment. Notice the resurrection that is to come is a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. That is the believers and the unbelievers will be raised and will be judged by God. This judgment, I'm sure, perked up the ears of Felix the governor. We'll see why in just a moment. In fact, God tells us in his word that he will hold every person accountable. Sin will be judged. You cannot escape the judging eye of God. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can hide where God cannot see you. God knows where you are. God knows who you are. And every person will find the judgment of God. And this is is comforting to those of us who know Christ Jesus as our Savior because he took our punishment and he is our righteousness. And that is not comforting for those who do not know Christ as their Savior because you will face God and you will face his righteousness when you are a sinner. And that is not a good place to be in. Because God will judge sin, and if you are a sinner whose sin has not already been paid for, you will pay for that sin, and you cannot escape that judgment. You cannot escape it. You cannot hide from it, because He knows you. He knows where you are. And there are people today, it looks like they get away with it. You know, one of the baffling things about history is if you read history of World War II, it's one of the things that frustrates some historians. You know, when you look about Hitler's life, and Hitler dies in the end without being seemingly, he dies by his own hand without being held account for what he did. And some people say, well, Hitler got away with this. He, he did not get away with anything. He will stand before the Almighty God, and God will hold him accountable. Right. And death does not prevent you from being held accountable for your sin. God will judge all. And then he deals with the matter, or he deals with his personal life. Sorry, I, f- I forgot this last point here. He says his personal life as one of striving to live p- peaceably with people. He says this being so, verse 16, I myself strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward men. He says, I'm not trying to pick fights with people. I'm trying to present the truth. I have a clear conscience towards God and towards people, which reminds me of what he says in the book of Romans when he says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Paul tells us that his idea in life was to to live peaceably with God, peaceably with people, and then finally he deals with the matter at hand. Sorry, the matter at hand, verse 17 all this was in the past, but why was Paul standing before this man now? He for once for once, has an uninterrupted defense. It's amazing. No one screams at Paul. No one rises up and drags him out. He's allowed to speak. He says in verse 17, After many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me when I stand before the council, verse 21, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out. Standing among them, he said, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. The reason he's there is because he spoke about Christ. He spoke about the resurrection of the dead, and I believe this resurrection and the statement about judgment caused Felix, the governor, to pause. Felix had heard this before and was curious about this, and he wanted to know more, which led to a very interesting opportunity because to this point, Paul had been speaking publicly. And now we have an interesting shift. Look at verse 22. We see the private conference. Paul had an opportunity to preach Now he has an opportunity to persuade. Paul had been preaching about the resurrection and defending himself. Now he faces a curious man. Look at verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, that means he was aware of what Paul was talking about. He adjourned the proceedings. He stopped the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Felix is a fascinating character because he was familiar with the truth, and he wanted to hear more. He was curious about what Paul was saying. He was legitimately curious. He wanted to hear this in a different setting. And I think there was some wisdom here with Paul dealing with a governor because I thought to myself, if I ever had the opportunity to stand before a governor, be standing before someone who was a big wig in our culture today, what would I say? I wonder, what would you say if you had the opportunity, if you had the ear of a government official? Well, notice first that Felix makes a delay for the judgment. He, meant he wants everyone delayed here because he wants to hear of Elysius before he makes a decision. And I know here that he simply wasn't waiting for Elysius because of how the rest of this story unfolds. Because he let Paul have some freedom, and then you notice here how curious he is, and it says here he was curious of what Paul had said. He says, when the commander has come, uh, I'll make a decision. So, he commanded the centurion to keep him, and he wanted to he wanted to have Paul nearby. He was a curious, curious man, and he's also a convicted man. Look at verse 24. After some days, when Felix had come with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. As he reasoned about righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call you. Felix was a curious man, but he was also a convicted man. He was a man who's convicted by the truth. And there may be some people here who are curious. You're curious about faith. I've talked to some people who've come to our church who will sit in the chairs and say, You know, I'm just really curious. I'm curious about the Bible. I want to know what God has to say. I'm not sure if I believe it, but I'm curious. I want to hear more. That's an okay place to be in, but it's a dangerous place to be in. Because in the next step, God works through Paul to bring truth to his life and confront him. Because here's the thing, if you're, if you're curious about truth, there's only a matter of time before God's Spirit begins to work on your heart, and He will start knocking on the door of your heart and you will start being convicted about your sin, and you will start hearing the truth as it applies to you. You cannot stay curious for long without being convicted. Notice the visit with Felix and his wife. This is fascinating. It's a private conference. His wife, we don't know too much about her other than she was a Jewish woman who had been previously married to someone else, and Felix stole her away from her previous husband. That, that she was quite apparently quite a beautiful woman, and that Felix was, was known for being an adulterer and stealing this Drusilla. And she was a Jew, a Jewess. Being a Jewish woman, she would have had familiarity with the truth. And I don't know if they talked ahead of time or if she was like, we got to talk to Paul. He's here. we got him. We got to hear from him. I don't know if she was the influencer here or if he was the reason that he brought her. I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But that's a definitely interesting point to this, that, that then they, they, have this, they have this conversation with Paul. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. He wants to hear more. And when Paul confronts him, when Paul speaks to him, Paul does not hold back. Look at the way that Paul is described dealing with him. First, he talks about righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? It's the perfection of God. It's the perfect right of God. It is God's perfection. It's not, excuse, we cannot excuse our sin when we stand before the righteousness of God. God is perfectly righteous and the light, righteous requirement of the law of righteousness. What is, the, what is the second thing he talks about? Self-control. Coming to a man like Felix, this would have been a very direct accusation against him. Now think about how Paul is talking. This is a man who has every power over Paul. Uh, Felix could, with a snap of his fingers, Send Paul away. But Paul has the courage and the boldness to speak the truth about the righteousness of God. In fact, this word reasoning has the idea about dialoguing. It is this this conversation, this discussion, this close conversation. And then lastly, he talks about accountability. That is the coming judgment. And Paul looks at this man, and he tells him that he's going to be held accountable for his sin. The boldness in Paul is undeniable that God would deal with wickedness. How does Felix respond to this? Well, he's a conflicted man. In verse 25, Felix was afraid and he answered, Go away for now, for I have, and I have a convenient time. I will call you. His first response was fear, he was afraid. Why would he have been afraid of what Paul was speaking unless it was true? He knew that what Paul was saying was true. And people today respond the same way when God's truth is spoken. They know it's true, and often they respond with fear. It resonates in their heart, and they hate it because it confronts what they wish were not true. This is why, this is why when you often talk to people who do not say, I don't believe in God, and I hate him. Now, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Have you, ever, have you ever had conversations with God and they very much hate the God they're, con, they're convinced does not exist? It's because they know he does exist and they're rebelling against that God who does exist. You see, when you present the truth, the truth convicts and it has power of its own weight, it has its own weight behind it. He had, he had fear in his heart, but you notice the second thing, this delay he has. He says, when the time is convenient, I will come to you. You notice that delay is important because he he wants to he wants to have um, uh, Paul at his disposal. He doesn't want to have to be submissive. He wants to say, "Go away for now. When I have a convenient time." Isn't this the mo- one of the more dangerous responses to the gospel message today? D- d- right now is not not the time. I- I'd rather talk about this later. Can we deal with this later? I want, I want to do this when I've had some time to think about it. I want some convenience. I want to have control over the situation. The thing is, when the truth is presented, you are responsible to respond. You are, you are called to respond to that truth, friend. And, and there is no place for delay. Yes, fear when you understand the truth, but delay is a scary thing. He's, he's conflicted. We see this in this delay. He's conflicted about what to do with Paul. He hears the message, and he doesn't know what to do. In verse 26, it says, Meanwhile, he also hoped that the money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Time and time again, Felix would have Paul come in and talk, and he's hoping that Paul might bribe him. Now, Paul has just spoken to him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And Felix hears him. He wants to hear more from him, but he's also corrupt. And that Felix thinks that if Paul comes enough times, eventually Paul will give him the money he's looking for, and he will let Paul go. This is a corruption. But the delay lasted for two years. Look at verse 27. After two years, Portius Festus seceded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. For two years, time and time again, Felix would call Paul to come in and talk. And I'm sure they talked about these things over, and I would have loved to be there to hear these conversations. And after he would talk to Paul, he would let him go, and he'd call him back. And he delayed, and he delayed, and he pushed off and he kicked the can down the road and at time and time again he waited and waited and he delayed and after a while if you delay too long you run out of time and here the time was gone and he did not make a decision that we know of to trust christ i want you to think for a second before we go into the conclusion i want you to think about it from paul's perspective god is keeping paul safe in prison. Paul, can you think how frustrated Paul would be? Another conversation with Felix. We've gone over this before. I'm not bribing you. What are we talking about? Okay, yeah, have the opportunity to share the gospel. We have the conversation. We keep going. And over time, I imagine Paul, for two years, was thinking, man, I could be going all over the world. I could be doing things for Christ, and I'm stuck here. Yet God was protecting Paul in that prison. He had a purpose for it. But I want you to focus here on the warnings these passages give us. First, and this conclusion, I want to give you two warnings. The first is this, that the truth is... And what I'm calling an imperative. That is that the truth is not just what is. The truth tells us what ought to be. God demands a response. And Felix delayed. And the delay is to decide. There was a commercial. I think it was a Super Bowl commercial years ago that came on that was really funny. And it was a guy who was playing tennis. And he's standing there with his tennis racket. And the ball is served to him. And it goes right by his racket. And he waits for about a second. And then he swings his racket. Then it cuts to a scene in a, in a, in a, a very nice restaurant There's candlelight. There's a man and a woman sitting across from each other at the table. They're obviously in love. And she looks at his face, and she says, I love you. And he stares back at her, blankly. She uh, gets up in a huff and walks away from the table. And then he says, I love you too. <laughs> it was a stock trading ad, and it said, timing is everything. And the point was, is if you delay, you miss your opportunity. And I, as I was looking at this passage this week, that those scenes popped back in my mind more than once. To delay is to make a decision. So many people think if I can just not make a decision, then I won't, I, 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 won't, I, I mean, to not make a decision is okay. I mean, I, I'll just not choose uh, this or this. But friend, if you choose to delay, you're making a choice. And Felix, Felix here had an opportunity to trust Christ. He was hearing the gospel message. He was learning. He was being convicted. He was full of fear. He was obviously, the Spirit of God was working in his life. And What did he do? He delayed. He delayed and he delayed and he delayed and ended up nothing happened. And to delay is to choose. And my heart goes out to people. The truth is an imperative. My heart goes out to those who think they can just delay long enough until the decision is made for them. You cannot delay and escape the decision, choose you this day whom you will serve. If it's God, serve Him. If it's Baal, serve Him. If Jesus rose from the dead, if God is who He is, then just bow the knee before the Lord. Accept Him as your Savior. Believe in Him. Why do you waffle? Our hearts are, 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 are wicked things. We lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves often, and I I, I think that a lot of us fall in this category of Not believing the truth as an imperative, that is a decision to do something. It's not just a, uh, yeah, I believe the truth, but do you act on it? Secondly, I want to speak to Paul's um, work in this chapter that he was bold, and I would encourage you to be bold. And there are three ways that we're bold. You know, first, he was bold publicly. In large group settings, we sometimes freeze up and we don't know what to say. We get nervous and we wonder how we will be understood, we especially worry about this when our audience is not used to hearing about the things of the Lord. We might try to water down the truth if we're with a, with a group that we think, I don't know how these people are going to respond if I tell them that God hates sin. So we, we water down things. We don't speak the truth. What will they think? But when the opportunity comes to defend the faith in a public setting, I want to encourage you and I'm encouraging myself to step forward and speak the truth about the Lord Jesus and his gospel. And I don't know when that opportunity will come to you. It's amazing. After preaching a message, we've talked about boldness. We've talked about opportunities a lot in this this book chapter. Many of you have come to me afterwards and said, you know, I had this really great opportunity. I was talking to somebody, and I, I didn't expect it, but boom, I had this opportunity to share the gospel. And the next phrase is what makes me excited. And they say, and I took it. Like, that's awesome because who knows, maybe last month you would have had the opportunity and you would have said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just delay for a second. I'm not going to do this. I'm a little nervous about what to say. And maybe we'll eventually talk about something a little more comfortable. You know what? Take the opportunity. Be bold publicly and be bold privately. I, I, I think about Paul's private ministry to Felix the same way as his public ministry, but more pointed. In fact, when he was one-on-one with the governor, he took extra effort to preach about the governor's personal responsibility to God. I think this was intentional. We don't have any evidence that Paul directly confronted Felix about his sin publicly. He waited till he was one-on-one with him and privately he dealt with him about responsibility to God and about righteousness and about self-control. Be bold privately. Sometimes we like to hide in the crowd. We don't mind speaking if it's a bunch of people, but if it's one-on-one we get really nervous. And friend, be bold privately and be bold consistently paul stayed in his charge for 2 years he had many conversations with felix he had many opportunities to sin and to bribe his way out of this but time and time again he was faithful so would you be bold like paul was when you face governors i i don't know if you'll ever have the opportunity to speak to a political figure to speak to a governor to speak to someone who's a leader but i'm committing this week, I committed to the Lord. I said, Lord, if you give me the opportunity to speak one-on-one with a political leader, I will share with them the good news of Christ. I don't know if that will ever happen. I feel like it's unlikely to happen. But you never know. You never know when the opportunity is going to strike. And it's like I all, often give this illustration, but, you know, it's, they, they tell you, you know, I used to play baseball a lot as a kid. And, and when we were playing baseball, it was like, you've got to know what you're doing with the ball before it gets hit to you. If you're playing shortstop and you don't know what you're going to do, the ball gets hit to you, it's too late. You've got to know what you're going to do before you get the ball. And so every, every pitch, every, every bat, you look around, you talk about your, your players, you know, ball comes to me, it's going to you, then it's going there for the double play, we're going to take care. Okay, we're good, we know what we're doing, right? We're all in agreement. And what I'm asking you to do is make the decision now so you don't have to make the decision then. It's already made. When the, when the opportunity presents itself, you're like, well, I've already made this decision. I know what I'm going to do. God has already told me what he's going to do, and I'm going to obey God. That's what we need to do. Be bold publicly, be bold privately, and be bold consistently. Would you be committed to the Lord today to following and sharing the good news of Jesus wherever you are? Father, we ask that you bless each and every person who's making decision right now to be bold and to, to, to believe in the truth and to obey the truth, the truth as this imperative that calls us to make a decision, that we cannot just sit on the sidelines. We cannot sit on the fence. We cannot delay. We must choose. We may be convicted. We may be conflicted. But, lord we may we may be all these things you may be working right now in someone's heart but i pray you would not let that person alone that they would they would believe you they would give in to you lord they would they would succumb to you they would allow you to work they would not they would not uh, quench the spirit of god the work that that you're doing in their life if there's someone here today lord who's not trusted you as their personal savior needs to receive salvation by faith and needs to have that forgiveness of their sin Uh, Dear Lord, I pray that you would would help them to make that choice to trust you. They would not push this off till tomorrow or even later today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed later today. We have this moment and you've called us, Lord, to believe in you. So I pray that we would. And Father, for those who are struggling with their boldness, who don't feel like they are equipped, I pray that you give them the strength and the courage to make a decision now that when they have the opportunity to speak with those who need to hear the gospel, no matter how they are above us in social status or anything like that, we would be bold. And that your word would go forth with power. We're thankful that no matter where your word goes, it has its effect. As the rains come from heaven and water the grounds and bring forth seed and bud, so shall your word be that goes forth. It shall not return void. It will accomplish the purpose that you've sent it to do. And so, Lord, now we ask that you work in mighty ways in Jesus' name. Amen.